0: This is Steve Lawson and I'm so grateful that you've joined us for this episode of From the Pulpit. I've been preaching for over the last 50 years and I have committed the majority of my life really to preaching the Word of God and I'm so excited to be able to share with you uh, the sermon that is on this podcast. Uh, By way of background, I'm the professor of preaching at the Master's Seminary. I teach men to preach. I'm over the Doctor of Ministry program on expository preaching, and I preach on a regular basis at Trinity Bible Church of of Dallas. This podcast will serve to share many of those sermons and hopefully strengthen your walk with the Lord or perhaps bring you to faith in Christ for the very first time. So join me now on this episode of From the Pulpit. The title of the message today is Reasons to Believe the Bible. Now I want to begin by reading 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, and this morning I want to address you on why we believe the Bible. The Word of God reads, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want to ask you a question. Why do you believe that the Bible is God's Word? Do you have that answer ready at the forefront of your mind? Can you articulate the reasons why it is that you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Why do you believe that the Bible is not just another book? Why are you convinced that the Bible is a supernatural book? And it's not good enough just merely to say, I grew up in church and was taught the Bible. What rational reasons do you have for putting your faith in the message of this book? From a divine perspective, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God because the Holy Spirit of God has convinced our hearts that this book is the voice of God. It is the Holy Spirit who bears witness and who brings testimony to our spirit that this book is a supernatural book. And without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I could stack reasons from here to the heavens on why you should believe that this book is what it claims to be and you would not be convinced. It is ultimately an inside job, an inside work of the Holy Spirit within us. But this does not mean that there are not rational supports for this belief. There are many sound evidences and many convincing proofs that the Bible is God's Word. And so what are those rational arguments for believing the divine authorship of scripture. What are the logical reasons for accepting that the Bible is not just another book? So today, in this message, I want to present the case why the Bible is God's Word. I want to help you catalog your thoughts and arrange in your thinking why it is that I believe the Bible is God's Word. Now, if you're a mature Christian here today... And have believed the Bible for many years, then you need to know this. If you are a new believer and have just recently come into the kingdom of God, you need to know why it is that you have chosen to believe the message of this book. And if you are someone who is considering the claims of Christianity, you need to be persuaded that this book is bringing reliable testimony to your heart. So here they are. Number one is the direct claims of the Bible. We want to begin at the most basic place, that the Bible itself claims to be not the Word of mere men, but it claims to be the Word of God itself. In a court of law the defendant is allowed to take the witness stand and it is allowed to testify for itself regarding its own veracity and so it is with the Bible and we will look at this one verse 2nd Timothy 3 verse 16 under this heading I want you to see what the Bible clearly claims for itself we read all scripture is inspired by God did you note that not merely parts of the Bible Uh, sections of the Bible, all Scripture, not merely the thoughts of the Bible, but the very words, the very letters, the very markings of the Bible, every jot, every tittle of Scripture is inspired by God. Now, inspired by God, three words in the New American Standard is one word in the original Greek. In the ESV it says, breathed out by God. Four words. But in the original Greek, it is just one word. Theonoustos. Theos meaning God and noustos meaning breath or spirit. This is saying that all scripture is God-breathed. Now, please note, this does not say, this is the common misconception, that the writers were inspired. The writers were not inspired. That's not what your Bible says. All Scripture is inspired by God. So we are not saying that God breathed into uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are saying that they were moved as secondary authors to record what the primary author God desired to be written in the way that God wanted it written. God did not dictate it. God moved upon these writers, but what they recorded was God breathed. In fact, the word inspiration is very confusing, because as soon as you hear the prefix in— Our assumption is, is that God breathed into something. He either breathed into the authors or he breathed into the writings that they wrote and gave life to what they wrote. That's not what this is saying. It's 180 degrees in the opposite direction. This is claiming that everything that the biblical writers wrote was breathed out by God this really is not the doctrine of inspiration, it's really the doctrine of spiration, that it is breathed out by God. God is the source and the ultimate author of all Scripture, and the Bible is the product of the divine breath. Scripture was, has been recorded by supernatural operation. The entire Bible gives testimony to this some 3,800 times, not thirty-eight, thirty-eight hundred 3,800 times, we hear this expression or something like it. Thus says the Lord. The Lord said. And there are many places within the Bible in which we discover that what the Bible says in one place is what God says in another place. Or what God says in one place is... It is recorded as the Bible says it in another place. Therefore, what the Bible says is what God says, and what God says is what the Bible says. God and the Scripture speak with one voice. And as Augustine and Calvin said so long ago, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So that is reason number one. The direct claims of Scripture. We are not making a claim for the Bible that it does not make of itself. And number two, the extraordinary unity of the Bible. This one is so convincing to me that within the vast diversity of the Bible, there is extraordinary unity. You cannot explain this apart from this being God-breathed. Consider the diversity of the Bible. It consists of 66 different books that was written over 1,600 years by at least 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. Consider the diversity of its authors. Two were kings, two were priests. One was a physician, two were fishermen. Two were shepherds, one was a Pharisee, two were statesmen, one was a tax collector, one was a military general, one a scribe, one a cupbearer, one a goat herder. You talk about diversity. And consider the diversity of the styles with which they wrote. Narrative, poetry, prophecy, proverb, parable, epistle, allegory, song, legal writing. Consider the diversity of where this book was written. They weren't all sitting together in the same library. Uh, This book was written in the Sinai Desert, the palace of Jerusalem, a cave in Judea, the palace of Shushan, by the river of Babylon, the land of Egypt, Macedonia, Greece, Rome, the barren island of of Patmos. This diversity won't end. Do you realize that in the Bible there are 2,930 individuals who are mentioned? A spanning almost 1,200 chapters, comprising over 31,000 verses, using 700,000 words, three and a half million individual letters. And yet, when, this, when these 66 books come together, they form perfectly one book. When we open this book, we read of one origin of the world, one end of human history, one diagnosis of man's problem, one way of salvation, one history of the world, one standard of morality, one design for the family, one chief subject, one highest end. The Bible never wants contradicting itself the Bible always speaking in perfect unity and harmony, the Bible always speaking with one voice on every subject that it addressed. Now you tell me, do you think that just happened? Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose every state in the Union was to ship by train the state stone. Put it, cart it, put it onto a train, ship it to Washington, D.C. Limestone from one state, marble from another state, sandstone from another state, until 55 different railroad cars pull into Washington, D.C., and they take open the crates, and there are stones of every different size. Some are square, some are rectangular, some are cubical, some are cylinders. And after they are uncrated, with great cranes, they are put into place. And when you stand back, it fits perfectly to form the Lincoln Memorial Monument. The face is perfect. The clothing is perfect. The throne is perfect. The pillars are perfect. The dome is perfect. The buttresses are perfect perfect. Now, what would any thinking human being assume who has two brain cells touching between the ears? You would have to assume that there was a master architect behind this entire project that sent out specific architectural designs to all 50 states, and that they were required with great specificity to send their stones in, and when they all come together, it fits with absolute perfection. There would have to be a master architect behind it, all right? Far more amazing than that is that these 66 books all dovetail together and fit perfectly, it is like a, a tapestry of truth in every thread of doctrine, and every thread of, of history and science, and every little aspect, all perfectly interwoven, there's not a thread out of place anywhere, nothing contradicts, nothing competes with the other Over a period of 1,600 years, it took almost 2,000 years to compile it all, many never reading what the other authors wrote, and yet when it comes together, it speaks with infallibility and accuracy and perfection. This is a supernatural book, and there are rational, cognitive, intellectual, intelligent reasons why we believe this book. If, if we did not believe this, the, someone would be reduced to thinking this, that there was an explosion in a print factory and the result is the Oxford English Dictionary. Without a misspelled word, without anything out of place alphabetically, with every pronunciation of every word given correctly, with every primary and secondary definition, perfect do you think that just happened? Of course not. Such is, such is illogical. And so it is, we believe, that this book has come together. Third reason. The reliable transmission of the Bible. There is no book in the history of the world that has been so carefully passed down from antiquity to us today. Uh, first, consider the Old Testament. It was up until... Uh, a few years ago that the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had was about a thousand years after the birth of Christ. That would be the oldest copy of an Old Testament book that was reliable and it all came together well. And then in the year 1948, there was the Dead Sea Scroll Discovery. A little boy picked up a rock, who was a little shepherd boy, and he threw it into the cave outside of the, uh, uh, the area that's out by the Dead Sea. It made a hollow thud. He went in, he saw these clay pots. Little did he know they'd been sitting there for 2,000 years. They went in and discovered in these five caves the most amazing discovery, and in a moment, Our oldest records for the Old Testament were moved back to the day of Christ. The entire book of Isaiah. The entire Psalms. The entire book of Leviticus. Major portions and sections of the rest of of the Old Testament. Every book except for Esther was in that cave. And you know what we discovered? With absolute precision, that Old Testament text had been passed down for that entire millennium with virtual perfection. What a reliable record we have in this book. And in the places where there was some small variance, it was very easy to see how a copyist during that millennium made a little small error and we were able to put a V or an A back into its proper place. And in the New Testament, what an extraordinary story. Uh, The New Testament is, we have more than 5,800 early Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and almost another 10,000 in the Latin Vulgate. And when we compare this to other books of antiquity by Plato or Caesar or Homer, it's embarrassing. You have to go uh, with some of these other ancient books. The oldest copy that we have, for example, of of Homer, there's a 400-year gap. And with Plato... 1,300 years from the time he wrote it until we have a copy of what he wrote. And at that, there's only 10 copies. But with the New Testament, there is such a tiny little window. Not 1,300 years, 50 years. And not 10 copies, 5,300 copies. It's an embarrassment of riches that we have to draw from. F.F. Bruce writes, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. No, we have compelling intellectual, logical, rational, cerebral, intelligent reasons for putting our faith in the message of this book because of the accuracy and the precision with which it has been passed down to us. A fourth reason, the historical accuracy of the Bible. The Bible was written with an airtight precision in matters of history and events and people. Let's take, for example, Dr. Luke. In writing the Gospel of Luke, and writing the book of Acts... As we read the book of Acts, and as we go from town to town, and as Luke comments on and and rulers in those parts of the world, do you realize Luke gets it right every time? every time. And even governments are changing, and the titles of the people are changing with the shifting of governments. And you would think just once there would be a slip-up on Mark's part. We've had 2,000 years to try to poke holes in this. And what Luke recorded in the book of Acts is with impeccable historical accuracy. F.F. Bruce of the University of Manchester in England has written a work entitled The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Bruce writes, One of the most remarkable tokens of Luke's accuracy is his sure familiarity with the proper titles of all the notable persons who are mentioned in his pages. This was by no means such an easy feat in his day as it is in ours when it is so simple to consult uh, convenient books of reference he 's saying there were no convenient books of reference for Mark to use, such as we did. He had to investigate it himself, but he was under the under the the movement of the Holy Spirit of God. The accuracy of luke 's use of various titles in the Roman Empire he goes on to say could be compared to you and me being airdropped into the University of Oxford, and there being all kinds of professors and teachers. And instructors and vice principals and and presidents and librarians and on and on and on. And we just are walking our way through campus. And everyone that we meet, we give not only their name, but their proper professional title. I have trouble remembering my own children's names. Luke is recording this with airtight accuracy. No, we have every reason to put our faith and put our trust in this book. And the more the archaeologist digs into the sand of the Middle East, the more he unearths and uncovers documentation for what was written in this book 2,000 years ago. Let me just give you a couple. For example, the pool of Bethsaida that is mentioned in John 5, verse 2, with five porticos. For years, liberals said, ha, the Bible missed one slipped through the fingers of John as, as he wrote this, until the archaeologist has dug and dug, and there, 70 feet below dirt level, laying under the sands of time, they have discovered the pool of Bethsaida. In John 19, verse 13, the pavement of judgment, and where Jesus stood before Pilate, they dig, they dig, there it is. We could give example after example until the whole message would just be filled with archaeological discoveries that verify the veracity of the Bible, and not once are they unearthing something that contradicts, it only confirms. And I must hasten. Number four the scientific accuracy of the Bible. This is what we would expect of the Bible, is it not? It's God-breathed. We would expect every subject that God addresses to be addressed with precision and perfection. And from a scientific standpoint, whenever the Bible makes a scientific statement, it is done not with the learning of that day. When Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, We would expect to open this and for the wisdom of the Egyptians, at least in science, to come bleeding through. We read in Hebrews 11 that he was trained in all of the wisdom of the Pharisees. That's where he was taught. We would expect him to make outlandish scientific statements that everyone else in the world at that time held to, right? But as he writes... It is God-breathed. It must be true. The Bible is never catching up with science. Science is always catching up with what the Bible wrote hundreds, if not thousands, of years earlier. Let's take the first verse in the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Just lays there innocently enough. Herbert Spencer, who died in 1903, was an outstanding scientist, and he announced that everything in the universe fits into one of five categories. Time, force, action, space, and matter. But Moses wrote that in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, time, God force, created, that's action, the heaven, that's space, and the earth, that's matter. It's the tightest little scientific statement that could be made in the very first verse of the Bible. Or take, for example, and we could just go in any number of directions with this, let's just take the stars above. Um, In the second century B.C., a man named Hipparchus said that he counted the number of the stars in the sky and that there are 1,022 stars. He knows it because he counted it. Ptolemy followed four centuries later, 2nd century AD, and he said, no, it's not 1,022 stars, it's 1,056 stars. And that's what science believed. That is what was taught. In, in Athens and in the great classrooms of the, of the ancient world. And then Kepler, who was a great scientist, writing in the 17th century, he said, no, 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 we, we've undersold it. There are 1,055 stars. Well, in 1611, a man named Galileo invented the telescope. Oops. Oops. He looked up into the skies above and saw what no man has ever seen. He said, there are so many stars in the sky, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to count. They tell us today that they estimate. And it's just like you you lose a sense of perspective after some point. But 10 to the 26th power might come close to even estimating the number of the stars. So why is it when we read the Bible that we don't find some outlandish statement like there's 1,022 stars in the Bible? That's what everybody believed while the Bible was being written. Why would the Bible make a statement like it does in Genesis 33, verse 22, the host of heaven cannot be counted? Counted. See, whenever the Bible addresses the earth, the skies, the water, outer space, the human heart, the human body, anything like that, it speaks with absolute precision. Let me give you one more. We all know from our study that uh, people used to think the earth was flat. If you sailed too far past the, uh, the Gibraltar Straits, you would go off the edge. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and others began to sail, Magellan and Cook, and they discovered the world is not flat, and if you get too close to the edge, you're going to fall off. That's what science believed. That's what the great minds of the scientific arena were, were saying. But when we read the Bible, we read this. This was written almost 3,000 years ago. Isaiah 40, verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. What does God say the earth is? Does he say it's a, a pool table top? No, God says the circle of the earth. Isaiah didn't know that. But as Isaiah wrote, he recorded that which was breathed out by God. Or how about this? That the earth is just suspended on nothing. Now, how can that be? Ancient science says that the earth is on the back of Atlas. And then some wise said, so what's Atlas standing on? And they said, well, Atlas is standing on a rock, and what's the rock on? And the rock is standing on a, a pool of water, and what's the pool of water on? And it would just go almost endlessly. But when you open the Bible, you don't read nonsense. You don't read old wise tales. You don't read scientific superstitions of the day. Job 26, verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Close quote. Listen, God is a genius. And God knows it all. And whenever God speaks, he never contradicts himself, he never misrepresents reality. And the prophets, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit to record their message, even in scientific matters, they could only record what was absolutely true. Listen, it's not that we know so much about science that there's problems for the Bible. The problem is we don't hardly know enough about science, and the Bible is always correct. We could talk about the earth is rotating. Nobody knew that for a long time. Uh, we could talk about the earth is balanced. That as it rotates, it's not out of balance like a tire that's out of balance and, and we're being whipped around through space. But the depth of the ocean and the heights of the mountain and everything pulled together, and that is what is the testimony of Scripture. Uh, we could read in the Bible that God causes the vapors to ascend that water would be held up in, the, in, in mid-air in clouds, and then it releases the water and it, onto the earth. It flows down into streams. And then in the book of Job, it talks about... So why doesn't the ocean overflow? If If rivers never stop flowing into the ocean, why doesn't it just back up on land? Why is the coastline always the same? And the whole evaporation... Uh, cycle, it's all recorded in the Bible hundreds and hundreds of years before it was ever discovered by man. There's no end to this. Uh, uh, The cleaning of utensils before you eat, the quarantining of people if you have a a, a disease, uh, sanitation regarding animal body, on and on and on and on. It's all right here in the Bible. So when the Bible says, how to go to heaven, and what is required to know God, you'd be an absolute fool not to respond to what the Bible says to you. It's right on every subject that it addresses. And number five, fulfilled prophecy. We could just take this one alone, and and this would be sufficient right here. Only God knows the future. Only God reveals the future. And the reason is because God has foreordained the future. God has predestined the future. And it is nothing for God to make known to us what the future holds because God has already recorded it. And we could just take fulfilled prophecies at the first coming of Christ. Uh, There are over a hundred prophecies that were fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. Just think of some of these. The seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, seed of David. Born of a virgin, called Emmanuel, born in Bethlehem. Great persons would come to him while young. Children would be killed at that time. He'd be called out of Egypt. He would be preceded by a forerunner, be anointed with the Spirit, be a prophet like Moses. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. He would begin his public ministry in Galilee. He would enter publicly into Jerusalem. He would come into the temple. He would be marked by poverty and meekness, tenderness and compassion, yet be full of zeal and without deceit. He would preach in parables, work miracles, bear reproach. He would be rejected by his brethren. He would be a stone of stumbling to the Jews. He would be hated by Jews. He would be rejected by the Jewish leaders. The Jews and Gentiles would combine against him. He would be betrayed by a friend. Disciples would forsake him. He would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, not 29 or 28, 30. Uh, the price would be given to buy a potter's field. He would be, there would be intense sufferings. He would bear sufferings for others. He would be patient and silent in that suffering. He would be struck on the cheek. His visage would be marred. He would be spit upon and scorned. His hands would be nailed. He would be forsaken by God and cry out so. He would be mocked. Gall and vinegar would be given to him. His garments would be parted. Lots would be cast for his clothing. He would be numbered among the transgressors. His intercessor, he would intercede for his murderers. He would die. Not a bone of his body would be broken. He would be pierced, though. He would be buried with the rich. On and on and on and on. This is Hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Someone has tried to do the statistical probability that these would all intersect in one person's life. Are you ready for this? They said it would be like going to the state of Texas. You know this is going to be big. The state of Texas and to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars. Now, I remember from my 7th grade class, from the top of Texas to the bottom is 801 miles. And almost that long, east to west. If you were to mark just one of those silver dollars and cover the state of Texas in silver dollars two feet high, be put in a helicopter, and you've got one chance, blindfolded, To pull out a silver dollar, and it has that marking on it. I have a friend who married the largest landowner in the state of Texas. Before he married this girl, he said her dad put him in an airplane, and it took the entire day in an airplane to cover the land that their family owns you get one shot to pull out one silver coin. That's the statistical probability that all of the prophecies as they were written in the Old Testament hundreds and thousands of years before the coming of Christ and most of these were fulfilled by His enemies who had the most to lose by their fulfillment or were fulfilled in like where He would be born, when He would be born, of whom He would be born, what His lineage would be. Listen, this is a supernatural book. There's no other book in the Bible that's calling out things like this. And this is just one example. We could go on and on and on on the fulfilled prophecies just in the Old Testament. Let me give you a sixth reason why, why we must believe that the Bible is the Word of God and there can be no room for any equivocation whatsoever. There cannot be a hiccup in our faith. We must be rock solid in this. The Lord's testimony to the Bible. Now, Jesus Christ is the greatest person who ever lived. That's just the testimony of 98% of history. He is the most respected person to ever walk on the face of the earth. James Montgomery Boyce writes, The most important reason for believing the Bible is the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, what did Jesus have to say about the Bible? Well, Jesus said many things about the Bible. When He was here, He confirmed the canon of the Old Testament Scripture. In Luke 11, verse 51, he verified that the 39 books of the Old Testament are the canonical books. And there is no Apocrypha. He never uh, validated those books. As we look at what our Lord said, if you were to take the most controversial things that liberals today, we could get in a car and drive to liberal churches right here in this town, and they would just laugh and they would mock certain stories in the Bible. You know what those would be? That there was a literal Adam and Eve, that there was a a flood, a cataclysmic flood, that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by fire, and oh yeah, that a a fish swallowed a prophet named Jonah. Let's just take the big four. Do you know that in Jesus' earthly ministry, He built His strongest cases... Upon those four historical facts in the Old Testament. I mean when you're next on the line, you pull out your best case proof. In Mark ten, six through eight, he affirmed the historicity of Adam and Eve, Matthew twenty four thirty seven of the cataclysmic flood, Matthew ten, fifteen, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Matthew twelve thirty nine and forty. Jonah and the great fish. Uh, Jesus affirmed the, the kingship of David and Solomon. He affirmed the reality of Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah. He believed that the prophets spoke God's word. Matthew 5:17, "Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill." He believed every word of Scripture is inspired. What did he say when he was was tempted? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Did you get that? Do not let some liberal professor or preacher or ideologue tell you anything other than every word of the Bible is God-breathed. Let God be found true. Let every man be found a liar. We read in Matthew 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass. Now, let's just get this down. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is what looks like an eyelash. It looks like an apostrophe. And the smallest stroke on a Hebrew letter... What separates a lowercase l from a lowercase t is just that little dash, just that little stroke, just that little line. That's what Jesus says. Down to the apostrophe and the little stroke of every letter, of every word, In every account of the Bible, Jesus said it's all true. Now, this is not a matter of scholarship. This is a matter of lordship. Either you believe Jesus or you claim to be smarter than Jesus. Jesus said every stroke in every letter. Number seven. The amazing indestructibility of the Bible. <laughs> Believe me, every canon of history has been fired at this book. Whatever is going to be thrown at this book has been thrown at this book. Kings have banned it. Emperors have forbid it. Critics have assailed it. Philosophers have denounced it. Atheists have assaulted it. Infidels have mocked it. And there it stands. This book is like how the Scots used to build their fences. Three feet high and four feet wide. So that if someone knocks it over, it stands taller than it did to begin with. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades away, but the Word of our God stands forever. Forever. Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. This book is indestructible, it is irresistible, it is inexhaustible, it is unconquerable, it is unquenchable, it is uncontrollable. This book is the Word of God. It's not the book of the week, it's not the book of the year, it is the book of ages. Fifty years ago, or excuse me, two hundred years ago, a French skeptic named Voltaire said, one hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible on the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. And he brought all of his intellectual guns against the Bible, and tried to undercut the veracity of the Scripture. Fifty years after Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's house in order to print Bibles in his house. And the Bibles were stacked floor to ceiling in Voltaire's bedroom to the point no one could even walk into it. Two hundred years later, in 1933, the British government paid the Russian government for one ancient copy of the Bible, five hundred and ten thousand dollars. And that same day, an edition of Voltaire sold in Paris for eleven cents. How do you account for the amazing indestructibility of the Bible? How do you account that it's never outdated, that it's ever it's never old-fashioned? How do you account that we never have to update it? How do you account it's not like the, the world book where you need to get the latest edition to supplement at the end from the time that you bought it? How do you account that the Bible is more up-to-date than tomorrow's newspaper? How do you account the relevancy of the Bible to speak to the issues of the day in every generation of history? There is no other explanation but that this, is, this book is what it claims to be. I very quickly, let me give you the last couple. I want you to have it all. Number eight. The ethical superiority of the Bible. When we pick up the Bible and read it, we should be struck with the moral purity and ethical superiority of this book. It's not like picking up the Quran and we go kill the infidels, and if you believe this book, it will lead you to fly airplanes into buildings and kill innocent life. You don't read lies like that. When you pick up the Bible, you read, honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. When we pick up the Bible, we we don't read the cultural uh, uh, depravity of the day. We read, love your neighbor, love your enemies, love your wives, love your children. There is an ethical superiority about this book that transcends human experience. Number nine, the transforming power of the Bible. Reading this book actually affects us. This book gives the true knowledge of God in itself, and it has a transforming power on the inside. 1 Peter 1, says, You have been born again, not a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. When people take this book by faith into their heart and believe upon Jesus Christ, their lives are radically changed from the inside out and not just in some cases, across the board, anyone, anywhere, anytime, anytime place no exceptions, who believes in the message put forth by this book and believes in Jesus Christ, you will be changed and transformed from the innermost being of your life. You say, Well, I've read the Bible, and my life is just still in the gutter. It's because you've never believed with all of your heart upon Jesus Christ. And this book has transforming power. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This book has the power of God within it. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen, we read Shakespeare, hey, it's a nice book. We read the sports page, okay. Uh, we read the best, the very best of of human writing. We can read the classics. We can read the uh, the great Scots writers of the nineteenth century. We can read the the great French writers. Okay. We read this book, and our lives are sanctified. Drunkards are turned are made sober. Prostitutes become pure thieves become content, liars are turned into truth-tellers, the prideful are made humble, the broken are made whole, weeping is turned into rejoicing. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me, it has hands, it lays hold of me." These are the reasons that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And all of it because of the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit of God bringing confirmation to our hearts. One anonymous writer has put it this way. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be saved, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here heaven is opened and the gates of hell are disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, read it frequently, read it prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth to the soul and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life. It will be opened at the judgment, and it is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all to trifle with its contents. You hold in your hand the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible, the authoritative, the sufficient word of the living God. It is a book that is alive. It is a book that speaks the very voice of God to you. It will never falter. It will never fail. It will always lead you into the will of God. It will always sustain you in the darkest night. It will always breathe encouragement into you when you are weakest. It will declare the mind of God to you. It will present the Lord Jesus Christ to you. It, will te- it tells you what's on the other side of the grave. It tells you where you've come from, who you are, and where you are going. This book... It's like no other book that's ever been written. It is recorded by human instruments. But it is breathed out by God. May we read it. May we study it. May we teach it. May we preach it. May we sing it. May we proclaim it. May we embrace it. May we counsel with it. And if need be, may we die for it. For every Bible is stained, with the blood of the martyrs who have given their life to preserve the integrity of this book, let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for all of these different nuggets that have been set forth for us in Your Word in various places. That when we pull them all together, they're like pearls put onto a strand to form a necklace. Lord, what we have looked at today is really a necklace of supporting evidence of what the Holy Spirit has verified in our hearts. That this book is the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would make our faith strong and our confidence unwavering in this book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of From the Pulpit. If this was edifying to your Christian walk or if perhaps you have committed your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time, please leave a review wherever you listen to this. If you want to connect with me on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or at One Passion Ministries. If you want to join me live as I travel and preach, my speaking schedule can be found at onepassion.org. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of From the Pulpit. May the Lord greatly bless your walk with Him. Thank you for joining us.